HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Love Bites, coming at you live from Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Today is Monday, March 21st. Happy snowy spring, everybody. I'm one of your hosts, Jacqueline Raposo. I write about people who make food. You can find my work and me as at wordsfoodart.com. I'm 34th Street and single. And I'm your other host, Ben Rosenblatt. I'm an actor, writer, bartender, server. You can find me at benrosenblattactor.com. I am 33 straight. And single and back from Paris, You're France. Back. I'm so happy. Buddy. I know our I billions you. of listeners worldwide missed We're me. We're mourning your absence. Last week. Um, but I had a great time and I will tell you all about it next week. Um, and Jacqueline will also tell you about uh, the boy she's dating I'm and still uh, dating what the progress now. is like there. <laughs> but we've got a very packed show today. Um, and I'm going to let Jacqueline tell you what's to come. Yeah, I'm going to talk for a while. So grab your coffee. Um, so today is a very, very special show for yours truly. If you've listened to Love Bites over our last two seasons, you'll have heard me talk about my issues with chronic illness stemming from having been diagnosed with Lyme disease at a very young age and getting treated for it again in college and getting sick a couple times again afterwards. Chronic illnesses like Lyme, lupus, celiac, IBS, Crohn's, blood, bone, and heart diseases, what we call mental illnesses like anxiety, depression, anorexia, bulimia, and the like, and so many others, these affect how we relate to ourselves, other people, and the work that we do. Uh, Just this past week, while Ben was gone, I had two articles come out, one on Bust Magazine about how weight fluctuation because of illness affects body image issues in women, and for me, self-confidence in dating, uh, and a piece on Cosmopolitan about how opioids are controversial but necessary for those with unavoidable serious pain issues. I've mentioned before that I've been perked up on the show sometimes. Sometimes I need to take them. Um, I can't will my pain away, and so many others can't as well. So for our second segment today, we're going to be joined by private chef Ariane Resnick, who was diagnosed with late-stage Lyme disease and chemical poisoning and healed herself largely through holistic means. 
who now cooks healthful healing foods for others. But before we get to Ariane, I'm very excited to welcome Ali Cashel and Erica Lupinacci to the studio. The two co-founded Suffering the Silence, an online community for people living with chronic illness. It's a space to share stories so that other patients, friends, and family can witness the true living experience of chronic disease. Ali was first diagnosed with Lyme in 1998, and her incredible book, Suffering the Silence, Chronic Lyme Disease in an Age of Denial, tracks both personal stories of those living with Lyme disease, plus the political and social controversy surrounding it. Erica was diagnosed with lupus at age 18 and has since dedicated herself to raising awareness about the disease, working as a guest lecturer and patient teacher for medical students. On our blog, Ali and Erica have shared their top 10 tips for dealing with chronic illness so for the, sorry, for those dealing with chronic illness as to how we can continually help those who love us help us, how we can better communicate honestly, how we can invite loved ones into our experience, and how we can let go of relationships that no longer serve us. So go to lovebitesradio.com under blog posts uh, about that for now. But today, we're going to pick their brains about the opposite, bringing some insight on living with chronic illness to those to light for those who don't suffer in silence. So welcome to Heritage Radio, Ali and Erica. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So to start off, why don't you tell us the basics about your illness? We know I've said how long you've had it, but what was it like at its worst? What is it like now? And, you know, what is the disease itself? Sure. So um, I was first diagnosed with Lyme, as you said, when I was seven years old in 1998. I had a pretty classic presentation of the disease, bullseye rash, positive blood test, everything that you can sort of think of when it comes to a classic presentation of Lyme. I was treated with antibiotics, and it was assumed that I was pretty healthy. It wasn't until I started to go through adolescence that a few strange symptoms started popping up, um, arthritis-like symptoms, fatigue-like symptoms, that didn't really make sense with the kid who I had been prior to adolescence. I was ultimately diagnosed with three other tick-borne diseases that many people don't always know about, Babesia, Bartonella, and Ericlea, none of which had been treated up until that point. And throughout late middle school, early high school, I spent years on and off antibiotic therapy. I had IV therapy. I started high school, actually, with a pick line in my arm that was pumping antibiotics to my heart. But all of that was actually pretty doable and, and um, manageable for me as a student and as a young person. It wasn't really until my senior year of high school when I experienced the first neurological symptoms of Lyme. I was struggling to speak. I was struggling to read. Um, I was in six car accidents in just six weeks. And I had some of the best doctors in the world tell me that it was physically impossible, that I was still dealing with Lyme or any of the other co-infections. And that instead, uh, sort of unquestionably, I was having a mental breakdown. And what I found is that many patients who are dealing with this with this disease and with sort of the ultimate results and the way that it affects your body after your infection, that's a that's something that many people are told, and f- that was the hardest for me. And actually, Erica ended up dealing with many of, of her sort of biggest flares right around the same time in our lives as well. Yeah, um, so now looking back on it, as a kid, I got sick a lot more than normal children do, but I didn't start experiencing serious symptoms until I was about 15 when I felt like I got the flu and those symptoms kind of didn't go away. Um, I had a lot of fatigue and joint pain and wasn't feeling well enough to go to school. And I started going to every specialist that my pediatrician could think of. And I was doing testing for about a year and a half and they had no idea what was going on. And I was finally sent to a rheumatologist who um, diagnosed me with 
ankylosing spondylitis and fibromyalgia. So and I was, what, what is that first one? I've never ankylosing heard. spondylitis. You know what? I don't even really know exactly how to explain <laughs> I'm impressed it. Impressed that you can say it. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of fun actually. Yeah. Um, can you but say it, it one more time. Ankylosing spondylitis. Ooh. Thank you. There we go. Um, basically, it, like I think it's like kind of a type of arthritis. Okay. Kind of. Um, and again, well, th- that is kind of one of the issues that what that disease was was never really explained to me. Um, and I was treated for that for about a year, and then I started experiencing what I thought were very severe back spasms. And I would go to, I, initially I went to the ER, they tried to, they treated me with antispasmatic stuff and some pain meds and sent me home and then they kept happening. And then I had one that wasn't going away and it was getting to the point where I was in a neck brace and every time I would try to lay down, I couldn't breathe and no one knew what was going on. And I finally went to my rheumatologist. She sent me, she realized when she would lay me down that I couldn't breathe. Then I went to the cardiologist and my heart and lungs were surrounded by an immense amount of fluid. So I was admitted to the hospital again, went through a ton of testing and they finally diagnosed me with lupus. And the issue with lupus is that it presents itself incredibly differently in every person. Um, so it could have been a bunch of different things. And I think that that's why they didn't know what it was from the beginning. And also it's one of those diseases where unless you're experiencing a flare, it doesn't really show up in your blood work. So you kind of have to wait till you're really sick to be officially diagnosed with it. Yeah, the scary thing I find about both Lyme and lupus is that they can come off as other diseases so yes. often. And my pediatrician, when I was 12 years old and in a wheelchair, told my parents to take me to a psychiatrist that I was faking it. Yeah. For a 12-year-old to be faking being sick enough to get into a wheelchair when, you know, as soon as I found a Lyme literate doctor, I got diagnosed. It's very scary. And that's... um a lot for people to deal with are these big question marks. So what have you guys discovered either personally or through the people that you've worked with are sort of in speaking about relationships and communication, what is sort of the base way that people who let's say somebody has a friend, they, they have no personal health issues, but they have a friend who has an illness with a big, you know, capital letter that they don't understand. What is a base way that you find a sort of, um, a welcoming way to bring up a discussion? That's a great question. I think I think for me, talking about Lyme and talking about illness, because there's such sort of controversy surrounding that diagnosis was a real challenge. But I found that in relationships with, with new people who have come into my life who are important to me, one of the things that can be really helpful is not necessarily loading on all of that controversy or loading on all of that baggage that I carry, but instead trying to explain what it is that I'm going through just through my own lens and not necessarily through this much bigger societal picture of what my illness is or what people think of my illness. And instead share with my friend as if I were sharing with my friend that I had a, a bad night with a friend or a fight with my mom or whatever it is. Talk about it in that way, in a way that they will be able to understand and relate to. So... I can describe symptoms of um, my chronic illness directly as it relates to me and my body and my experience of the world, and not necessarily through that big controversial cultural lens that often surrounds it. 
And once we get into that, then sometimes there's other spaces for conversations or other pathways that we can pursue in that way. But I often feel sort of weighted by that controversy. And when I can let that go and tell them more about how it affects me and the person who I am, I feel like the conversations open up a lot more. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, with lupus, there isn't as much political controversy as there is surrounding Lyme. Yeah, and so for listeners, what we're talking about with that controversy with Lyme is that a lot of people, um, it's sort of polarized with people believing that you can have chronic Lyme disease that you can be that Lyme disease is a, as big of a problem as patients and many doctors believe it to be. It's a very politically controversial disease. If you pick up Ali's book, you'll it'll school you on it in better ways than I could. So sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Um, but I think definitely from our work that we've been doing, I've been a lot more open to talking about it and being more honest when I don't feel well. I used to pretend that I was fine or lie about why I had to bail on something last minute because I was embarrassed to say that I didn't feel well. So I think that me saying to someone like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm not feeling well or explaining going even more in depth as to, as to what my symptoms are that are preventing me from doing something or why I was up last night because I had a stomach spasm or whatever. I think offering a little bit more details shows that I'm willing to talk about it and saying, I think, to new people that I am involved with intimately, whether that's romantic or just friendship or in a work environment, like saying I'm open to talking about it and I would love to answer any questions has helped. And what do you want the person on the flip side to say? Because my uh, my part of my personal struggle is I will put that information out there. Mm-hmm. And when somebody doesn't pick up on the fact that I'm trying to open it up that discussion, it can be very hurtful. If I'm saying yeah. like, oh, I can't do this because I don't feel well. Or if I'm texting a friend and I say I'm having a really rough day, my symptoms are flaring and I don't get any response from that. It yeah. sort of um, makes you not want to share as much, of and especially with dating, getting involved with somebody romantically. Same thing. Like with new people, it's very hard to let them into your circle of illness in a way. And so what would you suggest for people on the other side? What do you want them to say or text or type or whatever when you open yourself up? What is a good way for people on the other side of the conversation to engage? Right. I mean, maybe it's something as simple as like, I'm here for you. What can I do to help? Um, So that you know that they are engaged in the way that you want them to be. I think one of the things that I've really learned is that not I mean, I didn't know what chronic illness was until it became chronic for me. And the people who I meet and my friends aren't going to know what chronic illness is until they've seen it over and over again in the same way that I had to learn it for myself and learn it for my body. And so as we open up to each other more, um, they will have a greater understanding of it as time progresses. But just being able to say, hey, what can I do? Um, or I know you didn't feel well yesterday. How are you feeling today? Yeah. Um, that Even that small gesture makes me feel like people are open to learning more about it, what it is that I'm going through. And I think checking in periodically and realizing that it's not just like, oh, okay, feel better. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, the whole I feel better to thing feel better is, every day. It's a double-edged sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, wish when it's like, yeah, I'll feel better than I do right now, but it's right. not like I'm ever going to feel yeah. you know, better. I think one of the things as someone who doesn't suffer with chronic illness and in trying to communicate with someone who does is wondering how much t- is talking about it too much. Right. And would you say it's better to err on the side of like overreaching or underreaching and like what? Where is that line? I think it depends on the 
kind of person you are. Like, I'm pretty open to talking about it, and I really appreciate when I can sit... Like, my roommate is someone who has been really amazing about me and dealing with my illness, and we kind of had an hour-long discussion where she asked me just a bunch of different questions um, about, like, what it felt like when I didn't feel well and what are things that she could help me with? Like, is it easy, you know, if I'm trying to do my laundry and it's really hard for me to do that day, like, can she go change it for me? Like, would that be, I love which is amazing. (laughs) Um, but something that she also does that I really appreciate is she says like, that sucks. Like, and just acknowledging like even, you know, cause you can always say like, I'm sorry and whatever, like that sucks. That must be so annoying that you're not feeling that way. But for me, I'm happy to talk about it a lot and have someone that checks in a lot. But I know for some people it can be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to overcomplicate it because (laughs) I have had the hardest time talking about it, even with people who have been really, really, really close to me. Um, my boyfriend and I have been together for, Um, over eight years and he was there through a lot of the hardest 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 and and biggest peaks of of my illness and especially when I was younger and I'm becoming more open for sure but I didn't want to talk about it I didn't want people to see me as a victim or I feared that maybe people would see me as a victim and he was one of the people who was able to to treat me like the smart capable human that I wanted to be even in my moments of weakness one of the things that I think has been really interesting is as I've become more open, he's been consistently there and he's had to sort of change the way that he talks to me about it because I'm becoming more and more open about talking about it myself and sort of needing to talk about it more and more myself as things change. And so I think in some of our longer relationships too, if you can sense where the person is at sort of in their life in general, right? If something hard is happening at work, you can, we have some idea of how much people want to share about that. And I I don't think that an illness experience is all that different. It's, It's an aspect of our life that we're living with all the time. And it's not something so acute in in certain situations. So we have to learn how to change and evolve with our friendships. And as our friendships grow and as we grow as people, our relationship with our illness is also going to grow and change. And I think that that will determine how much we want to talk about it. I definitely agree as far as the whole not wanting to feel victimized or feel small. And that's a big problem for me as far as like we've talked in the show about being vulnerable and opening up. And the guy that I was dating when we first started the show, the filmmaker that we've referred to, he actually gave me a really beautiful accidental lesson and that the one of our dates I was feeling horrible to the point that I almost told him not to come and he wouldn't let me not tell him how I was feeling he wouldn't let me close up and say that I was fine when he could see that I was very sick and he asked me what does it feel like he'd ask me when I'd say like oh well I'm not feeling well because some you know something's triggered these symptoms he'd be like well what are those triggers I'd be like no don't worry about it I'm fine he'd be like no I want to understand and that him saying for a relatively new relationship we'd been dating for a month for him to say yeah. I want to understand tell me what this feels like gives you a lot of like I can trust this person I can be responsible this person can be responsible for me and I can be vulnerable with them which I think in romantic relationships when you're the one that doesn't want to be the sick one but when you have an illness is a fine balancing act I I could not agree more and I think that's the case even in friendships in terms of being um vulnerable and letting yourself uh letting your weaknesses show and letting your sort of fears show and stuff like that and when you do open yourself up about these illness experiences sometimes there's a lot more vulnerability and fear that that can be met on the other side and yeah you don't want to feel like a burden you don't want to feel like 
someone has to take care of you. And I think, but I think it is hard, like, because this is the work that we've been doing. Like if you Google me, that this is the (laughs) first thing that comes up. And in my recent relationship, I'm, my girlfriend is actually here. Um, we, kind of connected through she she we went to school together but she followed our suffering the silence instagram account saw that we were gonna be in london and she happened to be traveling in london at the same time and we met up there and the rest is history but i kind of assumed like you know she had seen she people know now like they know i have lupus they know i have lupus but i forget that I haven't totally explained what that looks like. And so sometimes when you feel like people know, they don't really know. So you have to force yourself to be a little bit more vulnerable and explain exactly what that looks like day to day for people to truly understand it. Before we go to our break, what is um, on the flip side of this? Like we've all been dealing with these chronic issues for a long time. And I find that communication doesn't necessarily become easier with everybody no matter how much time happens that you still have to constantly like we've been talking about it reassessing how you speak and what you want to share and just as our illnesses ebb and flow so do our relationships so what is the biggest struggle that you're having right now about communication in a romantic familial friendship relationship that um that somebody who has lived with or been in a relationship with someone who's sick for a long time might benefit from i um have as throughout the book and through the work with stuff like this islands have now become so so public about what it means for me to have Lyme and tick-borne disease I've recently been doing a big deep dive into my health and have discovered a number of other issues that the Lyme have probably caused in my body and my family has gotten very very good at at knowing the Lyme language, at knowing how to talk about what it means for me to have Lyme. And now that these other issues have sort of come up and, and the shape and and name of my diagnosis sort of evolves and changes and the way that I have to treat it evolves and changes, I think in, in some respects, I, I want them to keep up with the conversation as quickly as I am, and I get frustrated when they're not. But I've realized that in many respects, though this is hard, it's it's my job to help them along and help them to support me. They're not going to know how to support me just because they love me and they want to support me. These can be really sort of tricky conversations to have. And so as my understanding of my body and my illness evolves, I, I need to help those who have been with me all the way through evolve with it. Um, for me, I think it, you know, it does depend on... I'm at a different state in my illness right now. I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty stable. So I've, but I've also gone through this whole thing. Our, our work in the past few months has made me be a lot more in touch with the emotional aspects of this disease. And I let myself get angry and I let myself get upset, which I didn't used to do. So right now, because I'm more active, that kind of can make me more frustrated when I do randomly get sick. You know, I'm an actor. I'm trying to create this career where you need a lot of energy and you need to be on and you need to be able to be on set for 12 hours. And when I don't feel like I can do that, I feel so broken and so hard. And I realize that like when I get discouraged about it, 
And when I have those bad days that are happening more rarely, which is good, I can take that out on the people around me. And I need to be a little bit more conscious of that. And I think I'm also trying to decide now if I want, I because I'm open to talking about it more and now because I am more public, I can sometimes feel like people baby me a little bit more when they're trying to be talking to me about it. They kind of treat me like... I can't handle it when I'm sometimes like, I do this every day. Like I got it. Like I'm taking my meds every day. Like I have so many things that I have to think about with that. So I don't know. I think it's just kind of finding that balance of like where you are in your really in your relationship with your body and your illness and like where you want the people in your life to be. It's kind of vague, but I have one more quick, like power question type of question that I just came up with. And I'll use myself as an example. If there's one thing you don't want people to say to you, what would that be? So my example, and this is something that I try not to do to other people who have illnesses or say like, I know exactly how you feel because, because I feel like we could like we out of sympathy, we like to compare experiences. But when Mm -hmm. I talk about, or like people who don't have illness using the spoon theory back at me, like, Oh, I'm tired. I don't have any spoons today. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's not, you know, it's, it's not, I appreciate you trying to explain to me, but these are not, these are different things. So for me, I try not to say to somebody else and I get, it sort of grinds my gears when I will talk about a very long-term hard thing and somebody be like, Oh, I get exactly what you mean because I had a really bad cold a couple weeks ago. Right. Um, so that's my thing. So what would be, uh, you know, very quickly, I'm going to use you... the classic example that we talk about a lot is, but you look fine. Like you look great right. today. Like you don't look sick. You look yeah. don't, and it's like, awesome. Like I put makeup on today. Like it did a good <laughs> job. Like great. No. Um, because that's a, a huge issue with a lot of these illnesses is that we all can present completely healthy and people can't see when you're not feeling well. And even when you're really, really sick, you can look fine. So saying, I, I know it's very uncomfortable when you, someone says you don't feel well and you want to say like, Oh, well you look okay. But it, it really can yeah. be That's a great very one. hurtful. That's yeah. A great one. Mine, I think I would say one of the things that I have a really hard time with is when other people in the illness world, or especially people outside of dealing with chronic illness, tell me how I'm going to get better and they're not my doctor and they're not me and they don't know my body and all of our bodies are so different and every treatment is going to affect people in different ways and every diet is going to affect people in different ways and I think understanding that we're all different and and sort of embracing that complexity creates room for awesome conversations but when you say this diet kills every bacteria in your system and you should definitely do that I have a hard time with that agreed I want to I want to thank you ladies so much for being honest and vulnerable with us today um, and for educating those of us who don't suffer with chronic illness and demystifying some of the experience a little bit. Uh, We do need to take a quick break um, and we'll hear a few words from our sponsor. And when we come back, we will be joined by Chef Ariane Resnick. So stick around. just your garden. 
It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Ariane Resnick is a private chef and certified nutritionist who specializes in organic farm-to-table cuisine. She has cooked for celebrities, has been featured all over the media world, and was a contestant on Food Network's Chopped. She is also a survivor of late-stage Lyme disease and chemical poisoning, and recovered holistically from both. Her first book, The Bone Broth Miracle, was released in May 2015 by Skyhorse Publishing. Thank you for joining us, Ariane. Hello, thank you. Um, can you just please, to, to start, tell our listeners what your symptoms were like at their worst and how they affected your ability to do your work at the time? Sure. Are you referring to Lyme disease initially? I had two different illnesses at two different times. I did not have Lyme disease and chemical poisoning congruently. Let's focus on the Lyme disease then for now, since that's sort of the show that we're doing, I guess, technically. Sure. Sort of. sure. Um, I was pretty functional, even though I was sick, the way a lot of people are, where before you know what's happening, you're just kind of trying, like, cleanses, and you know there's something terrible in your body, but you don't know what it is. So me at my worst was actually um, when I attempted to do herbal antibiotics for the Lyme disease, which was the first route that I went. I never, um, I never took any Western medicine for the Lyme disease, but I did have kind of a false start in treatment by doing the Cowden protocol, which made me a lot worse. So at my worst, um, I had fibromyalgia to the extent that my limbs just stopped being able to bend. And I couldn't walk and I couldn't reach into a cabinet to get a glass. And thankfully, that part of things was fairly short because um, I then found the treatment that worked for me. And that got rid of the worst of my symptoms and then got me on the road to getting better. What was that treatment? Uh, I used a Rife machine. Um, The one I used is a GB4000. It's a frequency generator, and it sends the frequency of any given specific thing through your body um, and basically explodes that thing inside of you. So it's not the world's most pleasant form of treatment, but it's very quick, and you use... um, the detox settings immediately after, which mitigates having a Herx reaction. So you're able to go through treatment never getting worse than you were to begin with. And um, it's a lot more effective in terms of Lyme disease for people who haven't done antibiotics because when you take the drugs long-term, you mutate the disease inside of you, and then it becomes more and more resistant. And so if you use something that runs the frequency of the Lyme spirochete through you, but the illness that you have inside of you is now a variation of the Lyme spirochete, it's much less effective. So I was very fortunate that I had only done about a month and a half of herbal antibiotics, and I had not, you know, created a mutation situation yet. And the Rife machine for me was a pretty quick process. How did your personal relationships change during this period, especially when your symptoms were at their worst? What was the greatest struggle with other people in your life at the time? Well, professionally, I was running a business, and I had a brand of food, and I was not very emotionally stable. So I was fairly awful to the people who worked for me, which is something that um, was really difficult as a person who, you know, on the whole is 
pretty nice of a lady. Um, I had a lot of really emotional issues from the Lyme. And my ex, who I was, she and I were married at the time, um, she was very supportive and she was very insistent that I go into therapy. And that really was a lifesaver for me. Um, hearing someone else tell me that they understood that the way I was behaving was not my personality, it was my illness speaking, and giving me tools to not let the illness win over my personality was vital and really paramount in my healing process. So I was fortunate in terms of relationship to be with someone who was very understanding and always very encouraging and always very insistent that I would recover. Whenever I would bring up the idea that, you know, some people have this for life and I would look at like the Lyme disease boards and the Facebook groups and I would see all of these people suffering for years and years on end, she just always remained insistent that I was going to get better and that was that. And having someone with that level of faith was very important and very positive of an experience and definitely contributed to my being able to recover as comprehensively and thoroughly as I did. So when you, you said that now you work with healthful healing recipes for other people, both people who are healthy and people who are trying to regain their health, what is sort of your Mm -hmm. protocol with food right now, both for yourself and for your clients? Sure. So for myself, I eat intuitively and I always have. I've been well from Lyme for over five years. I'm most definitely not a person with late stage Lyme disease anymore. Um, I've been, I got the chemical poisoning afterwards and I've been well from that now for about three years. So I've always eaten very intuitively and that's what I encourage others to do. When people come to me for nutrition counseling, they expect me to say, eat this, this diet works. Don't eat that. That thing won't help you. Um, but really what I do with people because I've found it's the most effective is get people in touch with what their bodies are seeking and with what their bodies respond well to. So we have these ideas like you need to eat lots of green vegetables because they're full of oxygen and all these vitamins and nutrients and they will get you better. But if your digestive system can't cope with green vegetables, they don't get you better. They get you bloated and pained and uncomfortable. So I work with people on creating a more positive relationship with food and I work with them on how to listen to their bodies in terms of what they're craving and what they can properly utilize. And I found that that leads to a lot more healing than simply telling people this food is good for this condition because we're just too individual for that. That's a really wonderful approach. So how does that conversation go with people who might not want to get rid of foods that are pretty obviously not good for you all the time too? fast foods, processed foods, things like that? How Mm -hmm. how do you have the conversation to get people to to listen to what their body wants, to have the capability to you know, have have their body tell them? How does that conversation go? Um, It goes very well because I frame it very differently than normal. We tend to come at nutrition very dogmatically, and I take the opposite approach. I think that um, one of my own personal biggest struggles in life has been in feeling good enough and feeling successful. So I've learned how to distill that into little sound bites that other people benefit from, where rather than saying, here's how to change your diet completely, and if you don't do it completely, you fail, I encourage people to make one very small change at a time amalgamate it into their daily routine until it becomes seamless and then make another small change. And I very much encourage people to consider themselves successful for every single small change they make. What I found that that does is that rather than feeling pressured because it's an all or nothing approach, 
you really take away the stress. And when you take away the stress and you take away the pressure, people succeed and they are more open in every possible way. And they're more in touch with how they're feeling. So I don't encourage people to remove every single horrible thing from their diet. I think that's a great end goal. And ideally, we all would. I mean, I don't eat processed food. I don't eat fast food. That doesn't make me a better human than anyone else. It just makes me a girl who is lucky enough to grow up with a mom who made everything. And I'm more than understanding that for some people, that's all they know. And that's their comfort. So I work very simply with, let's make a list. And what is a viable timeline for you? Do you want to try to take out one thing a day? Do you want to try to replace one thing a week? Do you want to go as slow as like making one small change a month? Whatever you choose and then stick to your success. And if you end up moving faster, which inevitably everyone always does, then your health returns even more quickly. So where is your health right now? And what are your health goals moving forward for yourself? Um, I'm golden, and I have been for years. Um, I know that the Lyme was fully eradicated because when I had the carbon monoxide poisoning, it, I was incredibly immunocompromised, and it had every opportunity to return, and it didn't. Um, and that was over five years ago. And then the chemical poisoning I recovered from in spring of 2013 and began working again. And, um, I mean, at my worst with that, I had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's from Cedar sinai So my proof that I recovered from that well is the fact that I... <laughs> I'm coherent, and I know what I'm doing, and I function, um, and I got my brain back. So my health is excellent. Um, I live a decent lifestyle that keeps it that way. I don't really have any health concerns, and my goals are simply to live my life happily and healthfully and help others do the same. Well, we are so happy to hear how healthy you are, and we hope yeah. it continues to stay that way for you. And, of course, we thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Ariane. We really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, you can find more about Ariane and her work at www.ariannecooks.com and on Twitter and Instagram as at Ariane Cooks. Information about her is also at our website, lovebitesradio.com. On our guests page, where also you can find more information about Allie and Erica. They're at www.sufferingthesilence.com and on Twitter and Instagram as at STS together. So that's sort of like suffering the silence together, STS together. Um, and they're on our guest page. They are blog posts about the top 10 things to help people with chronic illness talk to loved ones about is on our blog page there and as well as all the pieces I've written about uh, about chronic illness. Uh, so check out www.lovebitesradio.com for that. Um, so that is our show today. Come back next week for Ladies of the Food Book Fair. We'll be nerding out on books about food and how working with books about food affects love. More ladies. I'm such More a lucky guy. More ladies. <laughs> so until then, thanks to our engineer, David. Our theme song is You Better You Bet, covered by Robbie Gill. We are Jacqueline Raposo and Ben Rosenblatt and we'll be back at the same time next week here at heritageradionetwork.org later thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.